This morning we will be looking at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We come to you this morning, for you, O Lord, have the words of life. We ask, O Lord, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts, that it would take root, that we would be transformed, changed into the image of Christ. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's precious name, amen. We turn now this morning to chapter 5 of the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 5, we are going to see that Paul will be continuing to give us ethical instructions. That is, Paul is going to be continuing to teach us how we are to live. Now, you may recall that we've said in the past that this is Paul's pattern that in the second half of all of his letters, he gives this kind of instruction. In the first half of all of his letters is an exposition of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us, how God has changed us. And then in the second half of his letters, he begins to tell us how our lives are changed because of the change that God has wrought in us. So Paul is going to tell us how to live our lives. And this is important because we need help. We need help and instruction that comes from God to tell us how we are to live our lives so that we are not fumbling about in the dark. We have God's eternal holy word to tell us how we are to live. And so this morning we see three 
things in our text. Three commands, as it were, from Paul. First, being who you are. We are told that we are to be who we are. That is, whom God has made us to be. Second, living like you should. Living as we are called to by the Lord. And then third, knowing the stakes. Knowing what is at stake here in our lives. Being who you are, living like you should, and knowing the stakes. Let's begin then by looking at being who we are. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that we are to be imitators of God. We are to imitate God. Because after all, that is who we are. We are God's children, he says. Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So Paul is about to give us a holistic view of why we are to live as he has set forth. He has already told us that we are called to this kind of life. In chapter 4, verse 1. He's already told us that living as God has designated is the way that we grow and mature in Christ. We see that in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, he has told us that this is the way that we distinguish ourselves from the world. That we show that Jesus makes a difference by how we live. At the end of chapter 4, Paul has just been describing the great work of God. He's just told us that the Holy Spirit hates disunity, conflict, and corruption. He's told us that Jesus Christ has accomplished the work that was necessary to change us. And then he has told us in verse 32 that the Father has forgiven us because of who we are in Christ. And so now at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul uses that word again, therefore. For all of the reasons that Paul has laid out in chapter 4, now he is going to tell us that we are to be imitators of, Of God. As a result of everything that God has done, as a result of all we are called to, we are now called to strive. Now let's take a look here at verse 1. Let's start at the end and work our way backwards. Paul tells us that we are to strive as beloved children. Now notice what is critical about this phrase that Paul says, It is not that we are to act in a certain way in order to become children or in order that we might be loved by God. No, what Paul says is because we are already children of God, because we are already beloved by Him, we are to live this kind of life. It's because of our relationship with God that we are to strive to strive to live according to his commands. And Paul wants you not to forget that in Christ, you are special to God. That's what this word beloved means. It means loved because you are special. You are a special treasure to God because of the work of Jesus. 
Now, we see this, I think, even in our own families, the way that relationships work. I never would have thought, before I was married, that I would take such a keen personal interest in my children's grades or in how well they played baseball or in how well they drew or worked. But you see, because of the relationship I have to my children, I want them to succeed. I want them to be their best. I want to see them be all that they ought to be. And this is the relationship that we have with God. We are His children. We are loved by Him. And because of this, He wants to see us flourish. To be all that we can. To be as like Christ as we can. Because He is our Heavenly Father. And so what Paul tells us we are to do is we are to be imitators of God. We are to see who God is and to imitate Him. Now, the root of this word imitate is a Greek word that looks exactly like our word mimic. Now, you know what this is like. You all do. Anyone here who has a brother or a sister knows what the word mimic means. You had that opportunity sometime in your life when one of your siblings has determined it would be the greatest of joys to repeat every word you are saying. And it usually degenerates into something like, why are you repeating me? Why are you repeating me? Stop it. Stop it. I can't take any more of this. I can't take any more of this. Just repeating over and over again everything that we say. This kind of mimicking is also something we see that parrots do, for example. You know, Polly asks for a cracker, not because Polly wants a cracker, but because Polly has heard you say, Polly want a cracker, over and over and over again, and it mimics what you've said. So this is how we are to treat the Lord. We are to act after His likeness. A famous Reformed theologian puts it this way, We are to think God's thoughts after him. We are to desire to be like God, to do the things that he does, to love the things that he loves. Paul says the barometer for how you are to live starts with imitating God. We are to use God as our model and to emulate him. Now, there are ways in which we cannot be like God. God is eternal. God is self-existent. But then there are other ways in which we can be like God. God is loving. God is faithful. God is forgiving. And so we can imitate God by taking on those same attributes. We are to look to God for how to live. Now, Continuing our route backwards through verse 1, we see that the next word is be. Now this word be could also be translated become. This requires effort to be an imitator of God. Sometimes we are tempted to think that we can just simply be passive observers in the Christian life. But Paul is reminding us that we must actively cultivate a Christian life. Too often we think we can just sit around 
and let God do all of the work changing us. But the truth is that God changes us in our efforts to be like Him. It is not that we have the power to bring about the change, but that is the venue, that is the means within which God works to bring about change in us. It is our striving to live after God's ways. That's the truth of our life. The second way in which we can be who we are is by not only imitating God, but by imitating Christ. Now, you see, just in case we might be overwhelmed, because when Paul says, be like God, we would say, well, that's a pretty tall order. I can't be like God. I'm not as smart as God. I can't be as patient as God. You see, Paul knows our frame. And he wants to make this very practical because oftentimes our first instinct is to try and point out all of the difficulties and things that make something impossible so that we are somehow excused from striving. It's like when you try to help someone with their homework and they insist over and over again that it's impossible and it can't be done and it's not right. Or have you ever helped someone with a project And the entire beginning of the project is, oh, these are all the wrong tools. And I have the wrong instructions. This will never work. You're defeated before you started. So what Paul does is he brings it down to a very practical level. He tells us by imitating God, we are to imitate Christ. He starts with the most basic way that we can be like God. Love. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, notice that Paul does not tell us to have a certain act of love. This is not about action, per se. This is about a life that is changed by God. And so we are to walk in love. Now, you remember, we have seen Paul speak this way before. When he talks about walking, it's more than going for a stroll. It is our manner of life. It encompasses everything that we do. So we walk. In chapter 4, verse 1, we are to walk according to our calling. In chapter 4, verse 17, we are not to walk like the world. We are not to live like the world. So then the question that comes to us is, how do we live a life of love? Does that mean constantly stirring up emotions in ourselves? Do we live a life of love by always just being on the edge of tears? I don't think so. Does living a life of love mean vague acts of kindness that we perform randomly? No. There is a standard that Paul gives to us as to what it means to live a life of love. And that standard is Jesus. It comes out in a little word. As. We are to walk in love as, according to, just as, according to the standard of Jesus loving us. So we don't need to guess what it means to love. All we need to do is to look 
to Jesus. All we need to do is to understand how Jesus has loved us and how he has changed us, and we reflect that out to others. This is the standard of comparison. Now, we can see and know how Jesus has loved us. But Paul also describes for us what this love looks like. First, it is self-sacrifice. Jesus gave himself up for us. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in him by faith for the forgiveness of sins, if you find the answer to your doubt and your wickedness in the cross of Jesus, then you must understand that Jesus gave himself for you. He paid the price. And if we understand this, then our love will also be self-sacrificial. There is something else. The love that Jesus has makes a difference. He gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now this phrase, fragrant offering, occurs numerous times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, more than 40 times in the Old Testament. And the same Greek words that are used here are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what the old King James calls a sweet savor, a fragrant offering, we might say. It has a smell about it. And when it is used in the Old Testament, it is always used to describe an offering that satisfies God. It does what it is supposed to do. It makes a difference. And that's what the sacrificial love of Jesus does. It makes a difference in not just our lives, but in our existence. That's the kind of love we're called to. A love that makes a difference. It's also something that the world can see. Paul picks up on this language of the fragrant sacrifice, the sweet savor, and he discusses it in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. You see, the fragrance of Christ is something people take notice of. Now, you've seen this just in your ordinary lives, haven't you? You smell a certain perfume and you say, that's grandma. Or you smell a certain food coming out of the kitchen and you say, that's my wife making that. You see, there are certain smells that travel to our brain. And they bring to us a sure knowledge. And that's what Paul is saying here about the love of Christ. The love of Christ is understood. It is something that people take notice of. For some, they reject it and it is the smell of death. For others, they embrace it and it is the smell of life. But you cannot go without smelling it. So you see, the life of love that we are to live is to be something that those around us see and take notice of, that they know that we have been with Jesus. The second thing that Paul describes here is living like you should. 
And the way we are to live is described in two ways. First, purity in action, and then second, purity in speech. As we think about our actions and how we are to live, we have to understand that if we have been changed, it will show. We are different than we were. We think differently about what is true. We think differently about what is important because of the work of Jesus. And this cannot be separated from how we act. Our thoughts affect our actions. And I dare say that this is why the church is weak today. Every time you hear a survey or a poll that describes how in a certain sphere of morality or ethics, Christians behave just like non-Christians... The truth of the matter is that comes about because Christians don't understand the gospel and God's word. When we don't understand, we don't live differently. And so what Paul tells us is that our actions are to be influenced by our thoughts. And he begins now to address some specific areas. Now, these areas can make us uncomfortable because they're very personal. Paul wants our attention. And so he specifically picks areas of life and action that are very personal to us. And as we look at them, they seem like they're ripped from today's headlines. They seem like Paul is standing right next to us, describing the problems that we have in our world today. But the truth is that these are timeless problems because the sinful nature of man does not change. The world today, actually, and all of that is immoral before us, is shockingly very like the world in which Paul lived. It is actually probably more like Paul's world than 200 years ago or 500 years ago. These are sins that people struggle with because of the nature of sin. And the first thing that Paul takes up is, in verse 3, sexual immorality. Now, the world has become a very complex place in this area. There is a constant calling for acceptance of more and more change within the area of sexual immorality. And it is confusing to the best of us. After all, major universities can't even decide which pronouns to use for people anymore. And you see, what happens is, we have gone away from the simple truth of God's word, and we have gone into all areas of sin. And even amongst the youngest of us, we see this. This might be a touchy subject for a pastor to bring up 20 or 30 years ago. But today we know from examining the habits of children that five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds are viewing things that adults would not have viewed 20 years ago on cell phones and on screens. We know that they are confronted by their peers and by adults with concepts that they should not have in front of themselves. But you see, this is the state of our world. And Paul tells us that as Christians, we are called to be different, to stand for God's truth. 
And his rules of God's law are very simple. Everything outside of marriage is sinful. That's what Paul means when he describes sexual immorality. Now, just to give you an idea of how different Paul's calling is from the world in which we live. The word for sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneia, which immediately you should understand an English cognate that is used. Now remember what Paul says about this sexual immorality, this porneia. He says, it should not even be named among you. Now stop for a minute and think about how this kind of sexual immorality is everywhere in our society. Paul says it shouldn't even be named, and it's everywhere. We even use this kind of word, this word of wickedness, in nonchalant ways. Perhaps you've heard of the term food porn. Describes people who are always taking pictures of everything they eat and describing them in great details and obsessing over their food. And you see, that word is used in the context of food to dilute that word of shock value. So that when you hear it, you don't say, don't say that. It shouldn't even be named in my presence. And so when we turn on the television, and even if we are vigilant about what we watch, you could be watching a college football game. Have you seen the commercials that they play during college football games? It's everywhere in our society. And we are called as followers of Jesus to be different. The church should not be like the world in this. But Paul knows that people go even beyond sexual immorality. The next phrase that he takes up is impurity. And as Paul speaks about this, it's once again as if he is standing right with us and we're having a discussion about homosexuality and gender identity. That that's impurity that goes beyond actions. It goes to the nature of who we are as people. And what Paul says is, this should not be named amongst you. You should not be excusing it. You should not be trying to sanctify it. But this is more and more what's happening in the world, isn't it? We're told more and more that what is impure is good and right and to be celebrated. We're even told this in the church. You know, most recently, just this week, there was a so-called Christian philosopher thinker who in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which used to be so churched that it was called Jerusalem by those who lived there. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, he decided that same-sex marriage was permitted by the Bible. Because he declared that the kind of people that Romans 1 describes aren't like the same-sex couples he knows. And so with a wave of his hand, he makes that part of the Bible disappear. You see, this is the kind of world that we live in. Now, Paul is not denigrating people. He is not telling us to abuse people. He's actually lifting people up. He's saying that all people are made in the image of God. And that their highest end is to imitate God. And that we need to abandon actions that are contrary to the nature of God. Paul is calling us to repentance and to follow the Lord. 
The third thing that Paul describes is covetousness. Now, sometimes that can be hard to say, and especially for the young people among us, what does covetousness mean? I'll give you a simpler word. Greed. It means a constant desire for more and more. It is a grasping that is rooted in a dissatisfaction with our lives and what we have. It is a love of money. It is a love of what money can do for us. It is a love of all the things we can do with money. And this sin strikes us no matter what the age. We may desire that we cannot live without a Mercedes. Or we may desire that we cannot live without the latest Lego toys. Or the latest video game. Or the latest cell phone. That we cannot live and it consumes our thoughts. And everything that we are about is trying to grasp and to obtain and to get. And at its core, Paul says, this is idolatry. He says that in Colossians Chapter 3, he also says that those who are covetous are idolaters in just a bit. And this is true because to covet things is to say that God is not enough. That I have to worship something more than God or alongside God. And that's why Paul doesn't even want it named in our presence. It's the same way that The Lord told the Israelites in Exodus chapter 23 that they were to pay attention to everything he had told them and to make no mention of any other gods. They were not even to speak about them in their presence. So a question then comes to you here. I told you Paul got personal. What's your attitude about money? Is money something that you need to have? so that you can obtain the things that you can't live without? Are you constantly trying to grasp, to hold on? Or are you using money to free yourself, to help others, to give, to show to others that God is sufficient and that he always will provide? You see, Paul calls us to flee covetousness. But it's not just how we act that Paul is concerned about. It's also how we speak. We are to have purity in speech. You see, one escape route for us to live in our sin is to only worry about what others see. As long as we don't do something that others see, then we're okay. It's as if we would allow ourselves to taste sin so long as we don't eat it. And what Paul says here is that the way that we speak reflects who we are in Christ. The first thing that he brings up is he says, let there be no filthiness. Now this is indecent or offensive speech. And it is a sign of intellectual laziness. If you must continually, over and over again, use foul language instead of the hundreds of other adjectives, adverbs, and colorful words that you can use, it means you are being intellectually lazy. Now, here's the irony. 
This kind of filthiness is again burrowing down to younger and younger ages. And young people actually view this as a way to sound mature. It's as if they think that stunting my thoughts and thinking dumbly makes me more mature. But Paul says the exact opposite is the case. Because you see, this kind of language has no regard for others. It has no regard for standards. Then Paul moves on and he says, let there be no foolish talk. So it's not just about avoiding four-letter words. This kind of foolish talk is the kind of talk that thinks that it's funny or sophisticated. But what it is designed to do is to tear down other people. You know this kind of talk, don't you? Perhaps you've even been subject to it. The kind of biting sarcasm comes from someone that can't do something that you're doing and they think that the only way that they can look good is by making sarcastic or snotty remarks. It's designed to tear down what's praiseworthy. But Paul says, this should not be named among you. It's foolish. Lest you think that is witty and that you have the wit of a late night talk show host, you should understand what Paul thinks this kind of language is. It's moron words. That's literally what the Greek says. Moron words. It's foolish. It should not be named among you. Then Paul moves to another category that's related. Crude joking. Now this is the kind of joking that delights in pushing the envelope. And the Ephesians were actually masters at this. We know this from other secular sources, that they were masters of what we would call the double entendre, of kind of crude joking. And the chief problem here is that it makes us vulnerable to moral change. When something is funny, how could we possibly think that it's bad? And so if we could just make a crude joke about something, then we've made it more palatable for our lives. We become used to the idea. This is because there's a deep connection between your heart and your mouth. Jesus puts it this way, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In Matthew 15, verse 18. Instead, we are to have our mouths proceed with thanksgiving, Paul says. This should be the mark of our speech. We should show that we are content with what God has given to us. We are thankful for who we are and we recognize God's gift to us. That is the antidote to this kind of sinful, false language. The third and final thing that we see from this passage this morning is knowing the stakes. So why should we listen to Paul? Should we listen to Paul so that we can be respected by others? Should we listen to Paul because society wants us to? Why should we listen to Paul? What happens as a result of the change that Jesus makes? We are to listen to Paul and God's word because there is a link between how we live and our faith. 
And Paul shows us this by reiterating the list. He says, for everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now what Paul has done is he has taken the previous list of actions and he's taken those verbs and he's made nouns out of them. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that anyone who has one immoral thought is lost? Does that mean if I tell one crude joke, I can't be saved? No, I don't think that's what Paul means. Because again here, he's taking these verbs and making them nouns, and what he is saying is, is the person who is marked by this kind of action doesn't know Jesus. The kind of person that you look to and you say, that's a coveter even before you say his nationality or his occupation. If someone is known for their sexual immorality, if someone is known for their impurity, then we have to understand if they live lives that are marked by that, then they haven't been changed by Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. It's a warning. You see, when it's a way of life, it shows that if you made a profession of faith, it's not real. This is what Paul says. Paul's warning is before us, and it's not enough for Paul just to warn us. He warns us against those that would water down the warning. Do you see this here in verse 6? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul knew that in his day, there were those who were talking to Christians and saying, you know, don't worry about sins of the body. They can't affect the soul. The soul is distinct from the body. You can sin all you want with your body. It won't affect your soul at all. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Now, it's a little bit different here and today. Today, we have people who walk up to us and say, now, come on. Are you really that old-fashioned? Do you really think that God cares about those kinds of things? Look at everybody's doing it. Don't get all worked up about this. And you see, Paul says, don't be deceived. Those who do these things, who are marked by these things, experience the wrath of God because they are sons of disobedience, because they are unbelievers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they have not truly trusted Jesus and His Spirit has not come upon them and they are not changed by the power of God. The real danger is is that these deceivers are being found in the big C church. We see teachers who try to limit the scope of God's law, who try to explain away sin as culture, and who try to encourage people to find ways to misinterpret God's word. We see this all the time. One way, just one example that you should be aware of, when anyone looks at the Bible, and when you say, look, the Bible says this, and they say, Oh no, that was just for their culture and time, not our time. You answer, I thought our God was an eternal God. 
And I thought his word was an eternal word, preserved forever for each and every man, woman, and child on this earth. There is no cultural part to the Bible. Adultery is not done away with because our culture has changed. Theft is not done away with because our culture has changed. Lying is not acceptable because our culture has changed. We may be a culture of liars, of adulterers, and thieves, but that's still as wrong now as it was then. The truth is that how we live does make a difference. Because those whose hearts are gripped by immorality, impurity, and greed, and filthy language are in danger. We do not live right in order to obtain God's blessing. But we do live in such a way as to show that we have been changed by God. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? If you do, you have been given a new heart and a new will and a new life. And you should show the fruit of that heart and that will and that life. This is what Paul is calling you to this morning. To live in a way in which God declares in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning that you have confronted us with our sin. That you take our excuses away. And yet, Lord, you give us great hope because of the work of Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that you would remind us that Jesus is enough for us. That he is sufficient. And that he is able to change us to make us anew, that we might live in accordance with your word and declare before a world that Jesus saves. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.